This is not about freedom or personal choice. The message in America is still keep your distance. Vaccinated or not, you'll need to mask up. Mask up, some places even outside. An outdoor mask requirement. Is that really necessary? Other countries are taking a very different approach. Denmark has lifted all domestic pandemic restrictions. The Copenhagen as if Corona had never existed. Go Denmark. We in the United States should do the same. Economist Don Boudreau says Denmark, rightly, sees that locking down can be worse than COVID. Social life can now resume, which is good news for restaurants, cafes and nightclubs. And pretty safe for people, thanks to vaccines. We reduced COVID through vaccination to a fairly mild ailment for the vast majority of people. You don't have to worry if the bartender at your favorite bar is vaccinated or not. You're protected against suffering severe consequences. Get vaccinated and then go about your life normally. Portugal lifted most restrictions too. Britain ditched plans for a vaccine passport. Sweden's removed most restrictions. We don't have to continue to upend human life uh, in our in our quest to eliminate COVID, which which can't happen anyway. Why not? We eliminated smallpox. Smallpox resides only in human beings. COVID uses other animals as reservoirs. COVID lives in bats, deer, cats and dogs. We have never eliminated a disease that uses both humans and other animals as reservoirs. Still, China acts like it's possible. Beijing now says that it can keep the pandemic at bay. But only by taking repressive measures. In this case, nailing a man's door shut because he broke quarantine. It's just awful. It's, it's tyrannical. It's what you expect of a communist tyrannical government. At this propaganda exhibition, this woman thanks the Communist Party. Without the Communist Party leadership, this enormous challenge will not be overcome. The exhibition brought tears to my eyes. This is what tyranny brings you. You dispense all of your responsibility to the state. You become the state's slave, basically, and she loves that. Australians love it less. Here, a group overran the police when police tried to crack down on a pro-freedom rally. Curfews imposed, beaches, streets, stores empty. Australia's COVID rules are almost as strict as China's. Police checkpoints to ensure no one was ever more than 25 kilometers from home. You are bending my arm backwards. They handcuff people who break mask laws. Careful, Mark! Mark! You guys are But don't worry about losing freedom, says the politician in charge. They're not rules that are against you. They are rules for you. So say all dictators and tyrants. They all say that their tyranny is for the greater good. In some parts of Sydney, they're not allowed to go outside their homes for more than one hour a day. It's just crazy there. It's not a free society anymore. Oh, he's choking me. He's choking me. However, Australia and China have kept deaths much lower than other countries by repressing their people. But countries can't lock down forever. When the lockdowns stop, COVID will come back. And in lockdown countries where fewer people will have natural immunity, the next surge may be worse. That's why Denmark has said enough. 50,000 Danes celebrate the first post-pandemic free concert in Copenhagen.
Danes are living like it's 2019. It's not admitting defeat, it's admitting reality. We learn to live with COVID in the same way that we learn to live with many, many of the other pathogens. Living with COVID need not be terrible. The bacteria that caused the Black Death is still circulating in the human population. A handful of people every year still die of it. A case of bubonic plague. It's sad, but one day every one of us is going to be done in by something. And that's why it's time to end the pointless lockdowns, he says. And now that we have vaccines, adopt a sensible approach. We go about our lives normally. Traveling, going to school unmasked, uh, going to parties, dancing, hooking up, going to weddings, sporting events. Uh, we, we will live life normally again and be joyous. Hopefully humanity will come to its senses soon. I'm glad you watched this video. If you enjoyed it, please remember to subscribe and hit the notification bell to make sure you get the next one. I'm surprised they haven't come at you and said, you know, Mr. Caruso, dogs can't fly. <laughs> yes, I'm surprised at that as well. Jim Caruso built the Flying Dog Brewery. He makes beers like Doggy Style and Tropical Bitch. As a result, for 10 years, you've been in court fighting First Amendment battles? We've had a couple of run-ins with liquor commissions. Yes, we have. His trouble started because the Colorado Liquor Commission didn't like this label, which included the words, good beer, no shit. They told Caruso, pull the beer from the market or we suspend your license. That beer in today's dollars was worth a quarter million dollars. If we didn't have the wherewithal to continue, Flying Dog Brewery that has sold a half billion bottles of beer wouldn't exist. I can see why the regulators didn't want the word shit. <laughs> I'm glad we get to say it on this video. If you want free speech, then you have to respect that in others. After years of litigation, a court ruled that no shit is free speech. But then Michigan's Liquor Commission banned Raging Bitch. The commission called the beer's logo detrimental to the health, safety, and welfare of the general public. That surprised Caruso since the federal government had already approved Raging Bitch. It's a beautiful day. I've got box Brandenburg concertos on the radio. I get a call from the receptionist. Michigan State Police just called. And if you don't have the raging bitch pulled from the shelves in 24 hours, the state police will confiscate it. They said Oprah doesn't use the word on her show. Do you really want to live in a country where government bureaucrats, based on whim and personal preference, can censor whatever they don't like? Movies, books, music lyrics, news stories? No, but I wouldn't want to fight it over a beer name. What do you care? Change the name of the beer. All of these battles are fought at the margin. That's where everything controversial is. By the time you're defending something mainstream, it's too late. After another long battle, he won. The court said banning a label for vulgarity violates the First Amendment. But beating Michigan's bureaucrats didn't mean that Caruso was in the clear. When government bureaucrats don't find things to regulate, they feel they're not doing their job. Now in North Carolina, I received notice that a beer was rejected. It can't possibly be 
that little thing on this cartoon character. The commission wrote, this image is inappropriate. Rule 15B 1003-32 lets them ban labels that are undignified, immodest, or in bad taste. This is a law that they lean on to justify their behavior, their actions in banning anything they don't like. They don't like a lot of labels. About 230 labels were rejected for various reasons. Products with names like Beergasm, Hedonism, and Daddy Needs His Juice. Some breweries just sell their banned beer in other places. But Caruso sued. And just days before the first hearing in court, the commission suddenly approved his label. It was the first time they've ever changed their mind on a beer they disapproved. The commission said their change of heart rendered the case moot. So why still sue? That doesn't make the law go away. It's not about one beer label. It's about striking down an unconstitutional law. Unconstitutional? But the commission says a penis is plainly visible. It would be visible to children. If it was to protect the children before, and now you've lifted the ban, while they're either sacrificing the children at the altar of evading uh, the preliminary hearing, or they're just full of shit. We asked North Carolina's Liquor Commission about that, but they wouldn't agree to an interview. We already have the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, a federal agency. Why do we need these state bureaucrats? Well, that's a very good question. You have the federal government. There are one or 200 pages of regulations. And then every state has their own regulations. I think Maryland is 300 some pages, single spaced. Every state, the regulations vary. And the cost and time for compliance is onerous. Do you really think that is a sensible approach to alcohol regulation? No, neither do I. Please share and like this video. If you want to help us make more, click this button. I usually report the news, but this week you may have noticed I'm in the news because I'm suing Facebook for defamation because they simply lie about what I said in these two videos. Now, I don't like lawsuits. Before suing, I tried for a year to reach people at Facebook to try to fix things, but no one would. Normally, I wouldn't care. The internet is filled with lies, but this was Facebook. And Facebook was how I reached most of you. Not anymore, however, because now their missing context label not only smears me, it also means my content's being seen by fewer people. Many fewer, actually. 24 million people watch this video on Facebook. But after Facebook slapped its partly false label on it, views of all my videos dropped sharply. Fortunately, there are alternatives like YouTube. Now I get most of my views here. But losing Facebook was a big loss. Of course, Facebook's a private company. It can cut me off anytime it wants. But it does not have the right to just lie about me. The lie starts with Facebook's so-called fact checker, a group called Climate Feedback, run by this man. It posted this statement in quotes as if it were something I said. But I never said that. In my video arguing that government mismanagement fueled California's wildfires, I acknowledge that climate change plays a role. Climate change has made things worse. California's warmed three degrees over 50 years. So climate feedback uses a quote I never said. And based on that, Facebook restricts my views. We work with uh, a set of independent fact checkers. 
Facebook says I can appeal, but my appeal must go through climate feedback. I tried. I emailed the editor. She didn't respond. But two of the three scientists listed as their reviewers did agree to interviews. You're smearing me based on something I didn't say. Yeah, I mean, I've never commented on your article. That was a shock. He hadn't even seen my video. If this is implying that we have reviewed the video, then this is clearly wrong. There's something wrong with the system. This issue has become very political, uh, which is unfortunate. Zeke Hausfather is another climate feedback reviewer. He hadn't seen the video either. I certainly did not write a climate feedback piece reviewing your uh, segment. So we sent him a link and he watched it. Is that a fair label on the video that I did? I don't necessarily think so. You know, while there's plenty of debates around how much to emphasize forest management versus climate change, your piece clearly discussed that both were at fault here. After both reviewers admitted that Climate Feedback hadn't even shown them my video, Climate Feedback's editor finally responded to our emails, but they still wouldn't change their smear. Now, I've worked at NBC, CBS, ABC, and Fox. All would have fired me if I falsely attributed a quote. Yet Facebook won't even remove the quote. Bad as that mistake was, things then got worse. My most watched Facebook video is this one, asking if we're doomed because of climate change. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. My video suggests that we're not doomed, that we can adapt to rising sea levels by doing things like building dikes like Holland did. These three climate scientists invited climate alarmists to debate them, but not one would. Please come over here and sit next to that place and let's have a discussion. There are a lot more people want to hear what you have to say. Again, Climate Feedback got Facebook to label that video partly false. But what was false? My video said climate change is real. The alarmists have evidence that supports their fears. Temperature is rising. Still, Climate Feedback's director found scientists who disagreed with some of what I said. Only one would agree to be interviewed, Patrick Brown. What I took issue with was like the sea level claim. Brown didn't like that these scientists said that America can adjust to rising sea levels. You acknowledge that the water is rising. Yes, water has been rising for approximately 20,000 years. To me, when I watch that video, what I hear is that sea levels have been rising at a pretty constant rate forever. It's very small. It's not a big deal. And we will, you know, adapt. That's not the mainstream view. Brown says sea levels could eventually rise 200 feet. But you're citing an extreme. If I mean, obviously, if sea levels rose 200 feet, that would be a huge problem. But the IPCC doesn't consider that likely. I mean, I don't know if they assess sea level rise out to a thousand years, but that's what that's what I'm talking about. A thousand years. They censor me because of what might happen in a thousand years. My video also questioned the claim that hurricanes are getting stronger and stronger. The winds are getting harder and harder. No, they aren't. You can take a look at all the hurricanes around the planet. We can see them since 1970 because we got global satellite coverage right. and we can measure their power. And there is no significant increase whatsoever. Misleads viewers, said Vincent. But his own reviewer told me. And that's true. We don't see a, a change in hurricane frequency. That's consensus opinion. Yet Vincent still censors me for reporting it. I think that's wrong that you, that, uh, you were criticized for saying that. 
The IPCC, they don't claim that they're increasing. Later, Brown emailed us saying the problem is omission of contextual information rather than facts being wrong. Oh, so their fact check wasn't about actual facts. Facebook lets climate feedback and what seems to be his parent group, Science Feedback, also founded by Vincent, censor lots of debates. They got Facebook to limit the reach of Michael Schellenberger, a Time magazine hero of the environment, after he wrote that climate change is happening, but it's not the end of the world. They smeared environmentalist Bjorn Lomberg when he cited peer-reviewed research suggesting that the warming climate by reducing deaths from cold actually saves lives. They smeared former New York Times science writer John Tierney for writing that masking children can be harmful. And get this, Science Feedback was also the group that worked with Facebook to censor any content suggesting COVID was man-made. Only when President Biden ordered an investigation did Facebook finally allow people to discuss that. This censorship is bad. It's legal. Facebook can legally ban subjects or people. But it does not have a legal right to knowingly lie about what I say. That's defamation, and they need to stop. I hope my lawsuit will make them think twice about doing it again to me or anyone else. If you want to keep seeing our videos, please sign up for my email list. Just click that link there. We'll email you our new video every week. That way, we're not at the mercy of Facebook or any other social media company. America locks up more of its people than any other country. One reason is mandatory sentences. Mandatory minimum jail sentences are why Lawrence and Lamont Garrison spent more than a decade in jail. They were about to graduate from college when the FBI raided their home. They slammed my brother on the ground, slammed me on the ground, put us in handcuffs, and then they show us uh, a picture. Do you know this guy? And it was the guy that fixed our car. The brothers were arrested for cocaine conspiracy. But they found no property, no money, no drugs. No drugs? Nope. Never no. sold any drugs? Nope. The brothers deny they'd even use drugs. But some dealers claimed they'd seen them dealing at a car repair shop. Why name you? I did business with him legitimate uh, repairing a car. The dealers, by pointing to these two, reduced their sentences. This is the snitch culture. They will lie just to make you look uh, more like a horrible person. Now, they made us to look like uh, um, some type of uh, drug lords. Why would they do that? Because mandatory minimums encourage crooks to implicate others then the prosecutor might lower your sentence. That gives me an incentive to make stuff up. Absolutely, and, and people do. It's a perfect example, a perfect situation for someone to get themselves out of trouble. Snitch is not a bad word in my vocabulary. Snitch is a good word. That's how the, you know, criminals, murderers, drug dealers, they don't deal with but the choir boys. But he has an incentive to make something up about oh, somebody. Oh, but I can always, you can find that out. I gotta know when somebody's lying. Lise Wheel became a prosecutor right after law school. She's jailed smugglers, drug dealers, even a few hitmen. Most of you prosecutors like these mandatory yes. minimums. Why? It's more control for the prosecutor. And less control for a judge. 
the judge's hands are completely tied when there's a mandatory minimum. No matter the mitigating circumstances, no matter the unique circumstances of the crime or the victim or the defendant, nothing matters. The judge can't do anything? He can't say, this is nuts? No. Judges, they complain about this all the time. They apologize to defendants. They say, I'm sorry I have to do this, but I can't do anything else. A judge apologized to Scott Earle. After Earl had back surgery, he got addicted to painkillers. Then he met a woman in a bar. She kept asking him to supply him with painkiller pills. He resisted it. She first. was working for the cops. He didn't know at the time. He never sold any pills, but set up meetings where she could get pills, transferred them from Introduced one Introduced her to a supplier. Right. And for that, he was charged and given a 25-year mandatory minimum sentence. In the judge's apology, he said, this punishment does not fit the crime. With great reluctance, I will have to sentence the defendant to 25 years. Judges are begging the legislature to change this law. It's a harsh sentence, but that's sometimes what mandatory minimums mean. And if he pled with the prosecutor before they got to this stage, he wouldn't have been facing that. Oh, yes. Prosecutors want to avoid time-consuming trials. The threat of long jail time persuades accused people to plead guilty. I have had grown men on a drug bust just burst out in tears, weeping. Why? Mandatory minimums. If you plead guilty, you won't get the mandatory minimum. But if a defendant says, hey, look, I'm not a drug trafficker, I want to be able to tell a jury my side of the story. Prosecutors just drop the hammer. Why would a prosecutor be such a hard guy about it? Yeah, I like to be able to go to voters and say, look at my conviction rate. Look at these bad guys I've put in prison. Big bad John. Former prosecutor John Cornyn won his U.S. Senate seat after bragging about being tough on the bad guys. It's not a surprise that prosecutors are among the only people left to defend mandatory minimums because they do benefit directly from them. Some states have tougher minimums than others. I work in Florida. We have mandatory minimums for drug laws that are po probably the worst in the country. Um, the toughest in the country. The worst and the toughest. If you're caught with 22 pain pills without a prescription, you get an automatic three years in jail. 44 pills, seven years. Some of these laws just feel like a panicked response to fear of drugs. A panicked response? Yes. I don't think so. We're talking about hardcore dealers here. I'm sorry, when you're talking about somebody going out and trying to sell 322 pills. 22 pills. That's not somebody just using, John. That's somebody selling. But the Pain Management Institute says that could be less than a week's prescription. They're just low-level drug users. So what you have is addicts who are being picked up charged with trafficking and sent to prison for decades at a time. Like the Garrison brothers, though they weren't even drug users. They demanded a trial, but a jury believed the prosecution snitches. And you got almost 16 years, right. you got almost 20 years, right. and the snitch? Under three years. The message is, make something up about somebody. Exactly. Right. If proponents of mandatory minimums are correct that they reduce the crime rate, we should see two things. When they're imposed, the crime rate should go down. When they're repealed, the crime rate should go up. But that's not what we see. Michigan repealed its mandatory minimums more than 10 years ago. Since then, they've released thousands of drug offenders, they've saved billions of dollars, and the crime rate has fallen 20%. Public education is getting bad grades, low test scores, and shoddy teaching. Government-run schools fail kids. The education monopoly says fix things by investing in the education of our children. That always means spend more money. Actually believe in public education. But my city already spends billions 
Where does the money go? Under Mayor de Blasio, the Department of Education is spending a lot more on its staff at headquarters. 70% more on education bureaucrats. Bureaucrats eat the funds while kids struggle. Not learning and slipping through the cracks. There are some charter schools that do better, but the government limits their number. So nearly 50,000 kids are on wait lists. Richer parents can escape to private schools, but poorer families are stuck. That's why many parents are ecstatic to receive this letter from a charity called SSP for Student Sponsor Partners. And I literally cried so hard when I received that letter because I, I knew it was another opportunity, you know, for my son. Her son, Tyler, didn't feel safe in his government-run school because of frequent chaos like this. Yeah, I remember uh, one of my best friends being shot and killed right next to me. High schools in the Bronx are um, violent. There's no discipline. There's no education. Many Catholic schools, even though they spend much less money, are better. SSP sent Tyler to Cardinal Hayes High School. Cardinal Hayes, straight and Tyler, helped them, you know, excel in life. Strike three call. Including helping him become an outstanding baseball pitcher. Tyler Roche strikes out the side. I was fortunate enough to uh, receive seven free agent contracts coming out of high school. Now he's in college. He and thousands of other SSP students have been put on a path to success. That's why I support that charity. I'm not Catholic, but I've paid Catholic school tuition for dozens of kids and personally mentored five. She's my mentor and my friend. SSP is different from other groups that work with kids because it chooses an adult mentor for every student. When I wanted to give up, um, it was refreshing to have somebody who wasn't in my immediate family telling me that I could do it. Kimberly Anderson's mentor helped her find a career. I was just like, oh yeah, I want a job. And then she was like, what type of job? And I was like, I could just work in a food supermarket place. And she was like, you have to think bigger. How are you? <laughs> now Kimberly is a mentor. Are you having a good day? Are you still, are you writing your paper? Christopher Namtsi was Jorge Aguilar's mentor. He planted the seeds in my brain that I could do big things in life. He did. He went to medical school and became a doctor. He's the first in his family to go to college. SSP helped me break the chain of poverty. 85% of SSP kids graduate high school. That's twice as many as their public school peers. Most are accepted by colleges. All this happened because years ago, this man saw a problem. Unless a parent was reasonably well-to-do, she or he had no freedom to choose the school that they thought best for their children. So Peter Flanagan started SSP. One of the first kids he helped was Deborah Vizzi. I had been homeless for a while. I left an abusive foster home and was sort of hopping around from shelter to shelter. I met Peter Flanagan after frequenting a soup kitchen. He said to me, I could go to this really wonderful high school and that he would pay for it. And so I was suspicious, as I should have been, as especially as a kid who was on the street. But he was legit. And um, he, at the time, paid $350 for me to go to one of the best high schools in New York City. His mentorship gave her more than an education. He didn't realize 
that he helped me trust men, that he helped me believe in people, that he helped me have a future, that in, on some level even helped me to become a mother later and a good mother and a protective one, something that I hadn't had. Deborah's now executive director of SSP. If you would have told me when I was 12 years old, when I met Peter Flanagan, that I would then run this organization, I would have said that you were crazy. SSP now seeks more mentors and donors. Maybe you want to volunteer to help more young people escape bad government schools. SSP does what the school system in New York does not do for the kids. Government handouts keep going bad. Strangely, PBS is covering this now because it's airing a documentary on corporate welfare. This is basically socialism for the rich. Here's our Stossel TV-sized version of it. IKEA was founded in my home country of Sweden. Here in America, IKEA is best known for meatballs and nearly impossible to pronounce product names. IKEA said, oh, we're interested in coming to the Memphis area. We think it'd be a great fit for us. Um, but obviously with that, they also said, well, how much money are you gonna give us before we decide whether we're gonna come or not? The city of Memphis has a program called the Economic Development Growth Engine to entice new businesses to move to the city. One way it does this is by offering large property tax abatements. As always, the abatements are complex. And so it's the big companies with lots of lobbyists and lawyers that are able to figure these things out. IKEA agreed to create 175 new jobs with an average salary of $41,000 a year. Lines are growing tonight for IKEA's grand opening tomorrow. There was some pushback from other businesses as well. What about us? I mean, we've been here and we, we employ here and we pay taxes here. You're really pitting these gigantic corporations who know the government and have tons of lobbyists against mom and pop shops in our community that we're trying to save. You're basically asking people to pay more tax dollars in order for their competitor to succeed over them. Two years after IKEA Memphis opened to much fanfare and millions in tax breaks, new documents show the Swedish furniture retailer doesn't have as many jobs on the site as they promised. There's only one IKEA in Memphis, but there's 15 to 20 independent furniture stores in Memphis. Where's our tax break? Less than two years after IKEA opened, King's Furniture went out of business. These are our tax dollars. We work really hard for them, and they should go to things that we need. They should go to essential government services, roads, schools, police, fire. I mean, that's what this money should go to. I don't. I think it's essentially just not the role of government to give money to big corporations at the expense of small business owners. Many such programs begin with good intentions, but they result in unintended consequences. And those unintended consequences never, ever go away. We will always stand with the American farmers. Now to the farm bill. America's annual farm bills give money to farmers to make sure America has an adequate food supply. But that justification is just bunk. Most crops don't get subsidies, and they do just fine. Farmers choose to raise corn and soybeans because those are the um, crops that there's government uh, guaranteed uh, revenue insurance. Exactly, guaranteed money. 
And who gets it? It's the big guy who have the resources, not just to lobby in Congress, but to actually have entire shops to try to get and maximize the amount of subsidies that they're getting. Many of which are not even American companies. In 2016, the largest pork producer in the US, Chinese-owned Smithfield Foods, increased consumer prices in stores, but decreased the amount they paid farmers for live hogs. Yet, they still benefited from the government subsidy system, heavily lobbying to keep feed prices low. It's estimated that in 2019 alone, agribusiness spent over $135 million on lobbying. We embody what people romantically think about when they think about a farm. These farmers spent nothing. Jeff and Zach raise hogs, cattle, vegetables and poultry. They sell primarily to families and restaurants in the area. Pete Eshelman owns a four-star restaurant in nearby Fort Wayne, Indiana. In 2015, the Indiana State Legislature invited Jeff and Pete to make a presentation on farmers' markets and local restaurants. I come today as a fifth-generation Wabash County farmer. My son, who is my partner, is the sixth generation. What that but means is... they were in for a surprise. We finished our presentation and the chair of the committee said, well, that's illegal. They immediately had to stop selling and serving chickens from the farm. They basically came up with a story that small farms processing chicken on the farms is a health risk. What really happened was that the bigger politically connected farms got the legislature to ban competition. But Hawkins chicken was popular. So that's how a hashtag was born. Hashtag keep chicken on the menu. Like you've enjoyed this meal, will you please contact your representative? People were telling us they would call and they actually would lead with, is this about the chicken thing? When they picked up the phone. Not even hello. Yeah. Once again, Jeff, Zach and Pete head to Indianapolis to testify. The opposing side was not only represented by state regulators, but also by large agricultural lobbying interests, including the Indiana Farm Bureau, the Indiana State Poultry Association, the Indiana Pork Producers Association. It's all about eliminating competition. However, in this case... The social media campaign continued to create enormous public pressure. So local politicians took a closer look, without the influence of the agricultural lobbyists. What can we do to make this better? Remarkably, a revised bill was drafted to everyone's satisfaction. Restaurants, like Pete Eshelman's, can continue to serve locally sourced poultry, and neighbors have a choice in the food that they eat. A rare happy ending. One small victory amidst America's growing welfare for the rich. You can watch the full documentary at Free to Choose Network. This fall's hurricane damage is severe. What should the federal government do? This massive rebuilding effort will end up being one of the biggest ever. We'll be seeking resources from the Congress to make sure that disaster relief is available. Politicians from the areas that were hit always say, give us lots of money. We do need and will need federal resources. Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee wants about $150 billion just for Texas. So far, Congress has agreed to a portion of that. Of course, only the federal government can send in the military and other first responders. After Irma, 
13,000 National Guard soldiers helped rescue and evacuate people. This is the kind of emergency response we expect from the federal government. But rebuilding afterward? Why is that the federal government's responsibility? We're going to have to restore a lot of housing. Our infrastructure has to be restored. Yes, but why is that a federal job? Washington has no money of its own. Anything it spends is taken from states and local governments, from people who would probably have been smarter about spending it locally. The idea that it's always the federal government's responsibility is new. Until recently, businesses and charities handled most disaster response. In 1906, the massive San Francisco earthquake and fire that followed destroyed 80% of San Francisco. Despite this vast amount of destruction, the city was rebuilt quickly. The population recovered to pre-quake levels within just three years. This happened because rebuilding was done by residents, charities, and businesses, not by a bureaucratic government. The disaster even created some opportunities. All San Francisco's banks were destroyed. But one banking entrepreneur reopened quickly, giving loans to all sorts of people who needed help. His bank grew to be the Bank of America. Seven years later, the Midwest was hit with a huge storm now called the Great Easter Flood. Eleven states flooded. Rising water and tornadoes killed 600 people. The federal government did very little. But businesses stepped in. The National Cash Register Company built 300 boats to rescue flood victims and then provided meals and shelter for thousands of people. The role of businesses after disaster is seldom appreciated. Yes, they want to make a profit, but they also want to help neighbors and they want a good reputation. After recent hurricanes, big box stores like Home Depot and Walmart were quick to bring in fresh water, batteries, and food. In Puerto Rico, Coca-Cola donated a million dollars, PepsiCo two million. Elon Musk offers to rebuild Puerto Rico's electricity grid. Researchers found that after Hurricane Katrina, businesses and charities provided much more help than FEMA did. A few years ago, Oklahoma took a big hit. For three days, tornadoes tore through the state. FEMA spent lots of money to help rebuild, but even NBC's anchors noticed the private charities did a better job. If you're waiting for the government, you're going to be in for an awful long wait. The Baptist men, they're going to get it done yeah. tomorrow. The Baptist men got bulldozers and cleared tornado debris from more than a thousand homes. They brought in bobcats and bulldozers and chainsaws and they just went to work. Yeah. Within days, the Baptists gave them a new home. It was a mess out here and they cleaned it up and they've done that for our whole neighborhood. All of a sudden, we hear hammering and Maddie looks back and she grabs my shoulder and look up and they're already on our roof. You have people driving through handing you meals. People I didn't know would just walk up and give us money. It's just overwhelming to me that we were that taken care of. For 200 years when disasters hit, neighbors took care of neighbors. But now we hear a big storm requires big government. I say the head of the Baptist charity has it right. I don't think there's any kind of disaster that can take place that the nonprofit and faith-based groups cannot take care of.